Hello, thank you for downloading this episode of The Final Third. We have an amazing show for you guys today. We talk about MLS schedules getting released, World Cup qualifying results. And we also talk about the U.S. men's national team, the fact that they had a really good March friendly window and a really, really bad Olympic qualifying tournament. They crash out, fail to make the Olympics. We talk all about that. You don't want to miss it. But before that, if you're listening to this on a podcast platform, which you are, give us a follow, give us a rating. And if you do that and you actually leave like an actual review, we'll give you a shout out. And so this week's shout out that we're giving to is to, to Paul of the Persistent Infringement podcast, which we had on last week. Go give him a follow. But he said he loves listening to AJ and Jack discuss American soccer, the news and prediction show every Monday is a fun and informative episode. And the deep dive show on Thursdays delves into some important topics. Please keep producing great content. Thank you. No, thank you, Paul, for leaving such an amazing review. Go check him out. Go check out our Twitter as well, at Final Third Show on Twitter and Instagram to connect with us. Today we have a guest as well for the prediction show, and that is Logan of the Stateside Soccer Show. It's a great episode. Let's get started with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Final Third. My name is AJ Tabura, everyone's favorite Minnesota United, U.S. men's national team and women's national team fan and West Ham United fan. I'm joined by Jack. Jack, how are you doing? Uh, Pretty good. Excited for uh, spring break for us, which is coming up pretty soon. Yes. Uh, And that will be nice to get to watch some fun soccer matches as the season comes to an end in Europe, at least. And Jack is a Chelsea, uh, Atalanta, French national team fan, which was, we are going to talk about, and Minnesota United fan. Is that right, Jack? Yeah, and also Slovakia. Uh, oh, yeah. If, you, if you followed our Twitter, I tried speaking Slovak. Didn't right. always go well. But. That's right. Yeah, uh, Jack is a fan of uh, you know, two different European countries, and we're going to be talking about that, along with some other exciting news, including some U.S. men's national team news but you know this is our news and prediction show basically how this works is that in our news prediction show we talk about all the big things happening in soccer and give our predictions on the big matches we start with the big stories five really important news items that you should know going into the week both on and off the field then we go into going jack in time where jack talks about a very important historical event in soccer that still affects us today Then we go into the U.S. men's national team corner where we talk about the big picture news with the U.S. men's national team. And then we go over last week's big games and last week's predictions. And then we make some predictions for next week. And tonight, today, we have a very special guest. We have Logan of the Stateside Soccer Show joining us. So, yeah, uh, just, you know, keep keep an ear out for that. When it comes up, it's going to be a great show. We're actually recording this right before the U23 Olympic qualifying semifinal, which decides whether or not we go to the Olympics. So uh, we're going to record a prediction section after that. So, you know, whether or not we're happy or sad when that happens <laughs> is, is yet to be seen. All right. I don't know where this is going to go, but Jack and I just finished watching the USA. play. <laughs> I can't even get through this because it's so funny. USA just play Honduras. Did we the play Olympic- them though? Did we play did, them really? Did did we show up? I don't know. I'll, the USA play Honduras for the Olympic qualifying tournament semifinal. Winner goes on to play in Tokyo 2020. Really big opportunity. It'd be so amazing if we can send 
a team to the Olympics. Jack, did we do that? Did we beat Honduras? Uh, well, we're a U.S. sports team, so no, obviously not. Yes. For the third time in a row, I was going to say year, it's been 12 years since we sent a, a U.S. men's team to the Olympics, and that streak has continued at least until 2024. The USA have fallen to Honduras 2-1, to one, ending their hopes of going to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, and it was a rough one. Jack, just real quick, do you have any initial thoughts about that game in particular? I'm trying to think if I have any other an initial thoughts other than I, some of our players really showed up today and showed that they, that they were really happy to represent us, and others just were not in the right mindset today. That, that's, that's my initial thought. Like, you know, Jackson Ewell and Hassani Dotson, and actually Aaron Herrera played well. A lot of other folks on our team just didn't seem to be there. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And now I'm just going to... Uh, this is going to go in the U.S. men's national team section, but I'm just going to include this here at the top of the show because it's what everyone's probably thinking about. You know, this was a team made to grind out results. Which is what we did for the most part. You know, the keystones of this team throughout the four games that they played have been Vines, Ewell, Glad, Achoa, Dotson, and Ferreira. And these are the kinds of guys who, while not exactly technically gifted, work very hard. So we had players who had a lot of fight, but not a lot of players who can create chances and be creative forces. They played well against Dominican Republic, but that second half against the Dominican Republic was the only time you could ever be confident in this team. A lot of times they were let down by there not being enough quality chance creation or conversion in the final third name drop. And again, we saw this in pretty much every single game except the second half of the Dominican Republic game. Players like Mihalovic, Lewis, Michelle, Cardoso, Saucedo were players who wanted to help create things but just, just couldn't. And this lack of creativity was eventually the thing that sunk the ship. And it's been a common thread within the last four games. But so has our defensive errors. We had misplaced passes leading to almost goals back in the Costa Rica game with Pineda and Glad doing terrible distribution. Soto had a terrible back pass to create Mexico's only goal in our 1-0 loss. And David Ochoa in this past game against Honduras, the second goal to put them 2-0 up came from a very bad uh, pass out of the back situation where he's trying to pass to either Pineda, uh, Kessler or Glad and it hit the Honduras player, and it bounced in for the goal. Just very bad distribution coming out of the back. Not a lot of great communication. And this, at the end of the day, was not a team made to be creative dominant forces. This is the US, U23 USA C team. Those are the players who are the best that we have based on who's available. And yet they were able to grind out results up until it mattered. They were able to figure the, themselves out in the Dominican Republic game, but the Mexico game, and especially the Honduras game, it seemed like it reverted right back to where they were. Dotson, Ewell, Vines, Ochoa, those were pretty much the only players I was at all impressed with. Uh, I guess you can add Pineda, Kessler, and Glad. They did, they did pretty good aside from their distribution. But to me... To me, the biggest indictment isn't the players, because I can list Soto, Cardoso, Mihalovic, Lewis as players that struggled, maybe even uh, Herrera and Michelle and whatever. But my biggest concern going forward and the reason why we lost this match, the reason why we 
have not been dominant in this Olympics is because of that team selection. I have no qualms with our player pool. I know that our player pool is good. I know that that starting 11 that we put out was our best starting 11. The biggest criticism is on Jason Christ's camp roster selection. This qualifier could be way easier if we brought better players in the camp. Why didn't we bring in Eric Williamson, Jeremy Bobasi, Keaton Parks, Caden Clark, Frankie Amaya, players that you don't know, have played in the final third name drop who have been attacking forces for their teams, but we just didn't. We went with the safe pick, I suppose, but that's not even the safe pick. Eric Williamson, if we had them on the team, we would have won. Ibobasi, same story. Robinson, same story. The center backs managed to clean up their mess, but imagine having Robinson up there. Imagine having, instead of Soto and Ferreira, you have Jeremy Bobasi up there. You have Eric Williamson instead of Mihalovic up there. And we didn't pick them. And this is 100%. This, to me, is not on the players. Jack, I don't know if you agree with this, but this is 100% on the management. Whatever we came up with against Honduras was not enough. This is Jason Kreis's fault. This is U.S. Soccer Federation's fault for hiring him. And in my mind, he should be gone. Jack, did I miss anything through that? Mm, no, I don't think there was anything particularly missing from your analysis. You're right. The creativity was our downfall. And we could have done better with this roster selection. I mean, not we, but like, you know, Jason Christ could have. And I, I feel like, you know, a lot of a lot of people are going are are going to try and say, like, you know, we well, uh, you know. They're going to put out excuses for this sure. team and say, oh, uh, they, they, they just had they just had a bad a bad game. But no, this is just like a almost a systemic problem at this point. It seems like U.S. soccer just hasn't been investing as much in like the U.S. YNT uh, and in, you know, it shows with their choice of Jason Christ as a coach he played too conservatively during this entire tournament, didn't manage games particularly well and seemed just too committed to playing it out from the back, even when it was clear it wasn't working. So I agree. I think, I think you should probably, you know, leave the job either by choice or by being sacked. But yeah, uh, but I think the big thing is, you know, a lot of people were talking about after the first game that Jackson Ewell was like, you know, bad and like that he wasn't playing very well. I think he was throughout the entire tournament. He's arguably our best performer. Like he, he was the one who got the goal scoring going against the Dominican Republic. He was the one who got us even with a chance of getting back into the game tonight against Honduras. And he's been, and he's been a solid choice. People were also complaining about how like, you know, he, he was chosen as captain. He showed why he deserved that. Yeah. And I think like, honestly, he, he's a good candidate as like a, in a backup six role potentially for the, for the men's national team, yeah. like the, the full men's national team. That's one of my big takeaways. I put, again, I put nothing on the players. I will accept some players. Some players were just like, they weren't great. They're, but they're all players that played really, really well. And they should not be discredited because of this. Like Dotson, Ewell, Vines, Ochoa, uh, even some of the center backs, those are players I can see moving on to Europe because they're they're that good. But when you have players that just aren't that good, I'm thinking of Michelle, I'm thinking of uh, maybe Aaron Herrera, like, you know, whatever, Mihalovic, perhaps. It's not that it's not that they're bad. They might not have been the best. But we know how good they are. 
Jason Christ knows how good they are. And yet he still chose them. This is on, again, Jason Christ choosing a, just a bad, bad lineup to, to bring out for this, for this game, for this entire tournament. And again, you said this is a system, systemic problem. There are so many youth teams that we have that don't have coaches right now. We put Jason Christ in charge of the U23 team. I don't care if the Olympics aren't as important as the World Cup. I don't care if it's not as important as even the Gold Cup, which I probably would agree with. This is something that you need to qualify for because when you look at the teams that Honduras players play for, no offense to them, but it's, it should come to no surprise that the U.S. was the favorite going in. And to squander that chance... Like the players, sure, it's eleven players. They should they should probably come up with something. But if the fact that they couldn't, and the fact that it was even though, even though these players are really good, Jason Christ had them playing less than the sum of their parts is a huge indictment of him and the U.S. Soccer Federation, and something that we need to do a deep dive on eventually. The youth programs in the U.S. Because while the club teams have been doing really well pumping out and developing players, there's been a severe lack of quality coaching, quality recruitment, and quality management in the youth teams. And again, it's shown. Again, USA failed to make the Olympics since the 2008 Beijing Olympics. We miss out on Tokyo. Hopefully we go to, what's the next one, Paris? Paris? I think so. Okay, I think well, so. that's that's. I think Jack would like to go to that one, perhaps. So maybe <laughs> it's good that we failed to qualify. Now, this <laughs> has been a long first story, so let's jump into the big stories and the rest of this episode. We're starting off with the big stories. Number one is the MLS schedule getting released. Jack, how Finally. excited are you for the MLS season? Oh, I'm I'm really excited for it. Uh, I'm I'm I was very gassed to see the schedules come out because we've been waiting for so long since they gave us the openers so it's good to see yeah. the entire thing yeah it's been so long since mls even played it's been like what five months at this point since yep. december and when the mls cup happened it's been even longer since the regular season came out and the 2021 mls season is finally here and the schedule as you said has been dropped so each team's gonna have 34 games 17 home and 17 away most of the teams are going to be staying within their conference, save for you know some cross-conference games. For example, Atlanta United only plays against two Western Conference opposition, Seattle and LAFC. The rest of their games are against Eastern Conference teams. And this is mostly due to COVID travel restrictions, trying to keep uh, each team within a pretty safe bubble. And some of the key weekends, key games that I looked out for were the opening weekend, which is April 16th to 18th, so really coming up soon. The big matchups are, of course, Seattle versus Minnesota United, Montreal versus Toronto, Orlando versus Atlanta, as well as LAFC versus Austin FC, their inaugural game. June 27th, kind of a rivalry game, Austin FC versus Columbus Crew SC, some bad blood between those two teams. And then we have rivalry week, going to be a lot of great rivalry games, August 20th to 29th. Galaxy versus San Jose, Red Bulls versus NYCFC, Columbus versus FC Cincinnati, Orlando versus Inter Miami, LAFC versus LA Galaxy, Sounders versus the Timbers. 
It's going to be really interesting. We also have the MLS Cup rematch crew versus Sounders August 21st. And of course, we got Decision Day, which is the intra-conference opponents, the last game of the season, all happening at once November 7th to decide who goes into the playoffs. Real quick, I want to go over the big TV takeaways because this is, uh, with the schedule being released, we also have news of the national broadcasts. And this is actually going to be, this year, the most national TV broadcast windows in league history. We have 37 network broadcast windows, including five over ABC, like a big ABC, which is the most since 1998. 89 total matches will occur over ABC, ESPN, Fox, Fox Sports 1, Univision, or Unimas. And that's amazing for getting people to watch the game, to really growing the sport in America, something we talked about in the deep dive not too long ago. And the top seven clubs being featured on national TV. So the, in order, like the order of these clubs uh, getting featured on these national broadcasts from most to least, the top seven, LA Galaxy, LAFC, Atlanta United, Seattle Sounders, Austin FC, Inter Miami, and Orlando City. Kind of the teams you'd expect given, you know, you know, how much the league likes them, the, their marketability. All of those are, I think, pretty fine, except LA Galaxy being first. I do have some problems with that. But, you know, that's it for the schedule, the important games, and the, t- the TV stats. Jack, what do you think about the MLS schedule and all of those things? Well, I think I'm just really excited for the season. And also, oh, yeah. um, you know, uh, on April 16th or 17th, like that opening weekend, uh, everyone's going to want to keep an eye out because there's a possibility that AJ and I will be live commentating over a game. So uh, if that's interesting, check it out. Uh, We have still to plan that, but something we're looking at, but yeah, I also think the TV deal is a huge deal to kind of get it on more screens. And for people who are like looking for sports to watch, especially during the summer when Mm -hmm. a ton of other sports are out of season, just trying to get some, uh, into more households i think it's going to be huge for growing the game yes and it's going to be really exciting especially because for some of these you don't need cable or anything it's just over the air abc on fox you can just watch it wherever you are as long as you have i don't even know how tv works nowadays (laughs) you know what i mean uh but let's go from mls a really exciting mls season coming up to across the pond into europe We had some surprising results in UEFA World Cup qualifying. UEFA just started their World Cup qualifying cycle. Uh, We talked all about it last Thursday in our deep dive episode, so go check that out if you haven't. But now we're going to go over the results that may have been upsets, perhaps. Jack, take it away with that. Yeah, well, the first big one uh, that came to mind with this was Luxembourg versus Ireland. Yeah, that's crazy. As you'd expect, you would expect Ireland to easily take this away because when you think of Luxembourg, uh, the only re- the only reason I know someone who might be on the team is because we have one in Minnesota United. Uh, Fred Emmings is technically yeah. eligible to play for them, uh, but other than that, I had no idea who any of these other players are. And <laughs> Ireland continue almost a two year long streak without winning a game, uh, and they lost to Luxembourg due to a thirty five yard effort from Gerson Rodriguez, uh, who had a a fantastic effort, got right in the corner, passed the keeper, 
And it, it was a really good goal, to be fair, but Irish fans are just not happy at all. We had another very interesting game, and one that I actually issued an apology on Twitter for because yeah. I underestimated this team so much. Turkey versus the Netherlands. It had everything you would want to see from a game. Uh, Lille's 35-year-old striker, Barak Yilmaz, scored a hat trick, including a penalty and mm-hmm. a free kick goal from outside of the box, which was incredible. Uh, you also had uh, Hakan Kal- Kal- Kalanoglu, I think, uh, from Milan. He scored from, from way outside of yes. the area, and it was a fantastic goal right after halftime, too. Uh, and Netherlands, they didn't get walked over by four goals. It was four to two it ended up, but they scored twice in a minute, which was mm-hmm. incredible. So uh, it was three two for a while for five minutes until uh, Yilmaz scored that excellent free kick. And, you know, it was it was awesome. And there was even a penalty kick save at the very end by the Turkish keeper uh, against the Netherlands. And then on that same day, we had another upset. The World Cup finalists, Croatia, lost to Slovenia 1-0. A lone 15-minute Lovric goal was good enough for Slovenia as they kept out Croatia for 90 minutes. Serbia versus Portugal. This is one of the biggest ones because it was incredibly controversial at the end. Uh, Diogo Jota scored two goals right uh, right at the beginning in 36 minutes. Uh, And... Uh, Serbia, not to be outdone, responded in 15 minutes right after halftime. An Alexander Mitrovic goal and a Filip Kostic goal brought them level. And at the very end of the game, Ronaldo shot into the goal and it looked like a a defender cleared it off the line, although it looked like it actually crossed all the way over. It didn't just look. It literally went in. It It literally went went in. in. It went in. But VAR didn't look at it. And... It, they, uh, Ronaldo had a massive outburst. He defended yeah. himself afterwards. And to be fair, I'm not a Ronaldo fan by any stretch, but he, he I, I understand why, he's, yeah. he, why he was furious about that. That was a goal. And, uh, you know, Serbia, because of it, are now top of the group. Just to, just to talk about one that I care about a lot, Slovakia versus Malta. This was the game I tweeted in Slovak. I was not happy at the beginning because Malta, who haven't won a game in nearly... 15 years scored twice right uh in three minutes in the 16th and 19th minute slovakia fell asleep defending their key uh martin dubrovka their best goalkeepers out of the squad with an injury and it wasn't looking good they went uh slovakia went into the halftime two goals down but right after halftime in the 49th and 53rd minute they struck to to equalize and they kept it at that throughout the entire game uh, and Jan Gregersh, our, our boy from Minnesota, got yes. himself an assist, which was very nice to see. And he played very well, probably one of Slovakia's better players. Uh, he, he made some really important tackles throughout the game. And Spain were off to a rough start. They tied against Greece on the first day, almost uh, tied as well today against Georgia, of all countries. Uh-huh. The, but Danny Olmo saved them with a 92nd minute goal. Uh, Spain are not looking great right now, which is strange considering the last result before this was a 6-0 beating of Germany. So we'll see if Spain recovers, but it's not looking great for them. Right. I am not going to make any conclusions on any of these games <laughs> other than the fact that I was right. Turkey are a great team and they're definitely going to qualify for at least the second round. At least. Yeah. I, I liked seeing Romania. Like, as I said last Thursday, my girlfriend is Romanian. That's 
That was, pre- that was pretty. That was pretty fun to see. But another surprising result I will point out that we will talk about is France tying with Ukraine, which meant that for that first game, not neither of the World Cup finalists ended up getting all three points. So I think that's pretty interesting. But again, it's literally for some of these groups, one fifth of the way through World Cup qualifying. So we still have yet to see how the groups are going to shake out. Some other big news in terms of world soccer is this one. FIFA is to bring down the minimum transfer age to European countries down from 18 to 16. Now, this, this is actually very, very big news that not a lot of people might know about. But usually it's 18. That's the, the minimum age. Unless you sign with a team's academy, you have to wait till you turn 18 to sign a professional contract. Why does that matter? Three reasons. It means that exporting leagues, leagues that export a lot of talent to Europe, like Brazil, Argentina, and now even MLS, will be losing talent at an increasing rate. Instead of developing their own players in their academies and selling them on a la FC Dallas, you'll have players, when they turn 15 or 16, wait to sign a contract until a European team comes calling. And if they do come calling, they move over. And that means less transfer money and less money overall to spend on player development for these exporting teams and leagues. Why should FC Dallas keep developing players if they keep on losing them for free before they turn 16? They'll stop developing players and it'll hurt the US and whatever country that that team is in, in the long run. I saw a lot of US men's national team fans get excited because this means that players can move to Europe really easily, but that helps it the team in the short term. Because moving to Europe is exciting and good for players, but in the long run, it might severely hamper us. It also hurts European countries like England, Germany, or France, because now they'll be incentivized to invest in young talent from abroad. They might focus on South American prospects instead of domestic talent, which will hurt the English national team or whatever national team they're in. Why try to develop local kids in the area when you can shell out some cash for the quote-unquote next Neymar out of Brazil? And... And probably even the the most important part about this, it's also bad for the player because agents are notorious for going into third world countries in Africa and South America, picking up some high potential players, putting them in trial with a European team and just dumping them because when that happens, they get some money and they can move on to their next victim. And this has led to a huge influx of African and South American players to become trafficked to Europe with dreams of making a big in the soccer world only to end up homeless and impoverished in a new continent. Over 15,000 players are trafficked to Europe every year. Amadiallo, Manchester United's new starlet, was originally trafficked to Italy when he was younger and was able to make it out of that situation. And it's already bad enough when you have players, you know, they have to be 18 to move professionally. There's a little bit of a safeguard. But now imagine how it's going to be when you can prey on 16-year-olds, when you can get, you know, 16-year-olds who haven't, you know, really seen the world and really understood the world and you can get them to Europe to traffic them. The Lost Boys by Ed Hawkins is a great book about this. It's a very serious issue and it's only going to get worse if we lower that minimum transfer age. So overall, the only group, the only group that benefits this from this are European teams. Everyone else, including the players, will suffer, whether it's the selling team, whether it's the buying league or whether it's the player itself. Jack, what do you think? Do you actually think this is a great idea? Maybe you do. 
Absolutely not. I think okay. this is a terrible idea. I'm, uh, I, I don't think that it's going to be good, really, by any means, because, like you said, the trafficking concerns are reason enough why this shouldn't happen. And I, I also think that it's just going to really... I honestly, I like I I haven't thought too much about this because just in my mind, it, it gets shut down immediately when when you talk about the the first the first part of this, the biggest impact being trafficking of, of kids who just want to play soccer. And I I'm not I'm hoping that FIFA decides not to do this because it's not it's not a good plan just by any stretch of the imagination. And uh yeah, that, that's about all I really have to say. It's just bad. But let's go on to a happier note. Actually, a very no, sad note. We're not, we're not moving on to a happier note. <laughs> yeah, here. we are going to a very sad note. And we're talking about racial abuse. Thierry Henry leaving social media over some racial abuse. Jack, what do you make of this? I know you're a very big Thierry Henry fan. I know you're a, the, you're a racism hater. So walk course, us through this. Yeah. What's going well, on? You know, Thierry Henry is a French legend. He won the World Cup with France in 1998. He was a star for Arsenal. He arguably one of the best players to ever play in the Premier League as well. I say that as a Chelsea fan, even though he played for Arsenal. You know, he, he was incredible. But he announced this past Friday that he is quitting all of his social media accounts until tech companies do more to hold users accountable. And this this is been happening a lot there's been a lot of online racist abuse targeting black soccer players rangers player kimar roof and manchester united players anthony martial and fred uh chelsea players reese james callum hudson adoy and i could go on and on and on with all of these different players that have been racially abused online and yet somehow there has been next to nothing done by a lot of these social media mm-hmm. companies so Henri used his platform with 2.3 million followers on Twitter to say that he was going to quit the uh, the social media space because he believes, quote, it is not a safe place and it is not a safe environment. I wanted to take a stand on saying that it is an important tool that unfortunately some people turn it into a weapon because they can hide behind a fake account. He also added that it, he's not saying that it's not good to have social media. I'm just trying to say that it has to be a safe place. So he's trying to inspire other people to take action. And, uh, you know, Facebook, who owns Facebook, obviously, and Twitter, made a statement saying that they catch most of these instances before other people report them. But when so many of these incidents have been reported, it's clearly not being targeted well enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, Twitter said that they that they condemn racism in all its forms, but their actions haven't really been really been reflective of that and you know the premier league has been doing a lot more to combat to uh you know take a stand against racism but even they've been criticized for not doing enough in preventing and punishing these racist messages uh and it actually looks like there might be some progress being made because on friday britain's culture secretary oliver dowden who handles a lot of tech regulation in the country uh, tweeted to Thierry Henry, he replied to his original tweet, that no one should have to switch off social media because of abuse, adding that social media firms must do more to tackle that, and that he's intru- he's planning on introducing new laws to hold these platforms uh, accountable. So it looks like some action might be 
being made, but it's really unfortunate that this has to come to down to this, but I'm glad Thierry Henry is taking a stand because I I mean, if he feels it's important, I think it's important and I applaud him for taking that stand. Yeah, I also really applaud him for taking the stand. I think it's really important that we use our voices to tackle these issues, whether it's in the soccer world or, you know, like this outside of it. And with these new real quick stories I'm going to go over, we're also talking about taking a stand and taking action to do what's right. And for these real quick stories, I'll start with the Norway protests. And just like Thierry Henry, a lot of the Norway players and managers have been trying to take a stand against something that they see as an injustice in this world. And Norway have been protesting the Qatar World Cup during World Cup qualifying. Qatar has been well documented to be using slave labor to build their stadium infrastructure. And they're also known for some you know, general human rights violations. And as such, Norwegian players and managers have been protesting the World Cup, most notably wearing a shirt saying, quote, human rights on and off the pitch in their game on Saturday. You know, this is such an important thing. It's such a big topic that we can't really cover it in four minutes. So hopefully we'll be talking about human rights and soccer in a future deep dive episode. But good on Norway for protesting and actually being one of the first countries to actually take a stand against the Qatar World Cup. We also have Cesare Prandelli, who has resigned from his managerial role with Fiorentina of Syria, citing mental health issues. He led Fiorentina to a middling 14th place with six wins, six draws, and 11 losses since his appointment last November. And he's been struggling with depression for the last couple months, and he's been thinking about retiring from managerial uh, jobs because of it. And mental health is no joke, and we hope the best for Prandelli in the future, and hopefully we can work to make mental health care more accessible for everyone. And that's a really another a really important battle in the soccer world that hopefully Fiorentina and Prandelli can help advocate for in the future. Let's go to the going Jack in time section where Jack talks about some soccer history. Jack, what are we talking about today? Yeah, well, you mentioned in the last real quick story, in a few real quick stories, talking about protest and human rights. So I thought we'd take it back to the 1970s for an instance of what is called the most pathetic football match to have ever been played. But it also has a healthy dose of human rights uh, embedded in this story as well. So let's talk about Russia, or sorry, Chile versus the Soviet Union in 1973. So we've all watched our favorite team play a game so poorly that we all swore that they never actually showed up. And while that sort of remark is usually made in jest, there is an instance of this happening when that remark had a much deeper meaning. The 1974 World Cup was on the horizon, and one team had yet to be decided. The two teams in contention were Chile and the Soviet Union. They were set to compete over two legs, the first in October 1973 in Moscow, and the second in November of that year in Chile's Estadio Nacional. However, just one month before the first leg was to be played, on September 11, 1973, bombs destroyed the presidential palace in Chile. Military leaders ousted and killed the democratically elected Chilean president, Salvador Allende. Military rule was instituted, forming a junta that, was, that completely controlled the country. Of course, given that this took place during the 70s, it had massive implications for the Cold War. Nixon, who feared Salvador Allende would become a communist, supported the junta. 
And the Soviet Union, who had supported Allende, cut off all ties with Chile after the coup. Once the junta took over, they decided to detain all those who still had loyalties to Salvador Allende. The principal holding location was the Estadio Nacional, which held thousands of detainees and tortured them in the same location the Chilean team played their games. All of this served as a backdrop for the World Cup qualifiers. Now, the Soviets were among the biggest critics of the new Chilean government. The first match was incredibly hyped up, with the Soviets so confident of beating Chile at home in front of their home crowds. However, it ended in a humiliating, for at least the Soviet government and media, 0-0 draw. It all came down to the return leg at the Estadio Nacional. Now, at the same time, news had spread across the globe of the detention of political dissidents in the stadium, which the Chilean government dismissed as conspiracy. They were looking forward to the return leg, in fact, because they thought it would be a great opportunity to improve their credibility, making it seem like their country didn't detain political prisoners, but instead were just a proud soccer nation. The Soviet Union protested to FIFA, saying that they would not play in a stadium, quote, stained with blood. FIFA, in order to assuage concerns, sent inspectors to observe the stadium. However, on the day the inspectors came, the detainees were simply moved into an underground part of the stadium. Thousands of them oh, wow. were crowded into one, one place, and led to FIFA stating that the stadium was completely fit for competition, concluding that no political prisoners were being held there. On November 21st, then, the day of the second leg, the detainees were led out to a detention center in the Atacama Desert. The game was about to begin. There was a full crowd of Chilean uh, citizens ready to cheer on their team. However, the Soviet team never showed up. The USSR stayed true to its word. They refused to play in a blood-stained stadium. However, some believe that the Soviets simply refused to show up as a political calculation since, during the Cold War, losing on the day to an ideological opponent would very much hurt the Soviets' ideological standing. But what happened with the game, then, if the Soviet Union never showed up? Well, it was played as normal, in air quotes, I guess you'd say, in front of a full stadium, the Chilean players walked the ball into the opposition net, with the players taking 17 touches to bring it down the field, scoring in 17 seconds. Since the USSR team wasn't there to kick off after the first goal, it ended 1-0 to Chile, who went to the World Cup, and as sort of karma, I suppose you could say, didn't win a single game going out in a group that included West Germany, East Germany, and Australia. Many questions, though, remain to this day. Why did FIFA allow the match to go on, since they knew the Soviets wouldn't show up? How did the inspectors not see any evidence of abuse when thousands of prisoners were simply locked underground? We still don't know the answers to these questions and likely never will. At the same time, this match was labeled as the most pathetic soccer match ever played by Uruguayan author Eduardo Galeano. The match was also incredibly important, though, as it was the first time a country boycotted a soccer match for purely political reasons. And during the Cold War, sports were the perfect venue for ideological warfare, being able to claim what's called soft power over ideological opponents. But what does this mean for today? Well, if you ever watch Chile play at home, in the Estadio Nacional, keep an eye out for Escotilla 8. It's easy to spot. It's a set of old wooden bleachers from the old stadium, which were kept after it was renovated in 2011. 
They are dedicated to the prisoners who were detained and killed at the Estadio Nacional during that dark time in Chile's history. It serves as a permanent reminder of the inhumane actors that led to Chile's qualification for the 1974 World Cup and reminds us all of the first time another nation protested against another, uh, another country for purely political reasons. And that's the significance of that. All right. Thank you, Jack, for that going Jack in time. A very interesting one. Kind of a, a, a little bit uh, relevant, I suppose, given the, the stories that we talked about. And now let's go back to the present for the U.S. men's national team corner where we talk about the big stories with the U.S. men's national team. We got two this week. One, we go over the March friendlies. And two, we go over the Olympic qualifying tournament. Number one, we got the March friendlies. We got two wins, a 4-1 win over Jamaica and a 2-1 win over Northern Ireland. And here are the key takeaways. This team is for real. You dunk on a C team of a CONCACAF team and beat handedly the B squad for a European team. Now, these are games we're expected to win, and we do. Now, that's a very good step in the right direction. And we learned a lot about our depth. Sargent is our starting striker, but solid outings from Siabachu and DK made me confident that they can develop into very good number nines. We also learned that Legette and Aronson can make amazing substitutes for Musa, McKenney, or Reyna. Acosta, despite not playing well in the second game, could also be our number six option in case Adams gets injured. Luca Della Torre 100% deserves a spot as a midfielder or a winger. He's played very well for uh, his club side in the Netherlands and also for the US side in these friendlies. Pulisic and Reyna are amazing players who build off each other. They both had goals in the second game. Really good for their confidence going into the rest of the season. And, you know, they have just shown what they can do when they're wearing the U.S. jersey. Really good from them. Sergino Des and Yunus Musa both are really creative players who make things happen. And we're lucky they chose us over other countries they are eligible for. They brought in a lot of creativity in the middle third for uh, the U.S. team. Cannon and Richards admittedly didn't look amazing. Cannon made some mistakes in the first game and Richards looked almost unconfident with himself whenever he got subbed on. But the bottom line is we have so much quality depth. Like imagine we're playing a World Cup qualifier against Costa Rica and they're tired. And we bring on Brendan Aronson, Tim Weah, and Daryl DK. I think the Costa Ricans would actually like start crying because that those are very good options to bring off the bench. Overall, they're building confidence, which is going to be huge going into a very busy summer and fall. I also do want to mention that we tried a 3-4-3 with three center backs and Robinson and Dest acting as wimp backs against the game uh, against Northern Ireland. And I thought that was interesting. We're definitely not as familiar with it, which led to some sloppy play and lack of creativity. But overall, I saw glimpses of what it could be. A really good defensive setup to play against, uh, you know, top level national teams. When we need to be strong defensively against the likes of Costa Rica, Mexico away from home, or perhaps European teams. We're going to need to rely on a back three in order to be defensively sound. And for other games where we're the favorites, we can bring out our signature 4-3-3. But overall, there has just been so much talent that has emerged out of this U.S. team, and there's a lot to be excited for. This camp was a great chance to look at the team and really evaluate what made it strong and what made it weak. And there are way more things in that former 
column than the latter one. It's going to be a fun year, so let's see how the guys end off the European season. Let's hope they rock the boat and are ready for the May and June windows. But you know, let's talk about last week's predictions. Uh, we have five big games that we talked about last week with our you know, very special guest, Paul. Uh, Jack, why don't you explain the, you know, the way that we do the point system for the prediction section. Yeah, so as always, uh, our prediction section works that if you get the eventual winner correct, you get 10 points. Getting the exact result correct results in 20 points. And if you get none of that correct, you get zero points. All right. And let's start out with the U.S. Men's National Team, U23 versus Mexico U23. We just talked about the Olympic qualifying. This ended up being 0-1 to the host team, Mexico. And it could have been much worse. The Mexico U23 team is made up of mostly first or second choice Mexico U23s compared to USA's probably third or fourth choice squad. Mexico for sure controlled the match, but solid defensive work from our center backs Pineda and Kessler, along with goalkeeper Ochoa, kept them out for most of the first half. Our number eights got really stuffed consistently through this match and couldn't create anything. And yet we rested a lot of players, including Vines, Ewell, Freire, and Glad. So this result shouldn't really dictate how we view this team. Mexico's one goal came from a terrible, terrible back pass from Sebastian Soto. We just gave it away for an Antuna goal, which Mexico won 1-0. Pretty terrible from Soto there, but overall, it could have been way worse. To only keep it to one goal is pretty good. I saw the light. I knew that Soto was going to back pass it right into uh, the, the, the feet of a Mexican player. And that's why I said 0-1 for 20 points. Jack and Paul both agreed with me with the result. Jack said 2-3 for Mexico. Paul said 0-2 to Mexico. They both get 10 points. And with that, you know, I'll take this one as well. We'll, we'll go over Barcelona women's team versus Manchester City women's team in the UEFA Women's Champions League. They played this week because uh, they are not on international break. And this was such a dominant win from the Spanish side, who are now 21 wins in 21 games in the league. But we're talking about the Champions League here, and anything can happen. And so both sides, you know, admittedly did have a good amount of chances, but Barcelona were the only one of the two that looked clinical and comfortable enough to put away those chances. How Rose Lavelle didn't start this game is a question that I have. And uh, frankly, when you're looking at a team that really lacked uh, attacking prowess, you think that he she would add a lot. We had goals from Barcelona from Asisat, Oshoola, Mariona, Caldente, ooh, Caldente, there we go, which was a penalty and an 86th minute dagger from Jennifer Hermoso, who has scored 16 goals this season. Chloe Kelly of Manchester City could have taken a penalty to potentially make this game 2-1, to one, but a nice Sandra Panos save sunk the citizens down to 3-0. to zero. Quite, quite the deficit to make up for in the second leg. This is all Barcelona, and who knows if Manchester City can muster up a comeback. I said 4-1 to one for 10 points. Jack said 2-1 to one for 10 points. Paul said 3-1 to one for 10 points as well, all in favor of the Barcelona side. And Jack, we're not going to talk about, like we said earlier, France versus Ukraine. A mixed bag for France. It looked like France might not have been able to break down Ukraine. Do you agree with that? Or Well, I think that this is just a really clear example of France not taking an opponent seriously. They, right. they have done this a few times. They did it in a friendly against Finland uh, a few months back. Uh, and 
you know, they, they thought that they could just walk through this game and that was clearly not the right way to go about it. Uh, right. Uh, the first thing that happened in this game that was awesome. I, I, I was in the middle of a class. I got up and cheered. Uh, <laughs> Antoine Griezmann scored an absolutely stunning curling goal at 17 minutes. It was absolutely perfect. I, I was super hyped up for it. Uh, and France probably should have had a penalty for a very cynical challenge on Kingsley Coman by the keeper 15 minutes later. Uh, he took out his legs after reaching for the ball, completely missed it, and somehow that wasn't a penalty. Hmm. Uh, whatever. Uh, but France kind of kept it pretty pedestrian. They didn't really try and go any further. They looked very content to hold on to the 1-0 lead. However, the Ukrainians eventually broke away, and a shot took a massive, massive deflection off Presnel Kimpembe, the French center back, and Maurice, who had dived to the correct location, had it not uh, got had it, had it not taken the deflection, couldn't just could not save it. He, he was completely stranded. It nestled into the exact opposite corner, and neither side really tested the other afterwards, and both seemed pretty content with the draw somehow. Uh, and it ended 1-1, so not the best start to France's qualifying campaign. Absolutely none of us saw this coming. Uh, yes. It, because, to be fair, we, we weren't going to bet against the world champions, but AJ guessed 4-0 to zero for 0 Ooh. points, I guessed 4-1 to one for 0 points, and Paul guessed 3-0 to zero for 0 points. Paul said he believed in you, he wanted to believe in Ukraine, and I guess Ukraine heard him and, uh, and <laughs> listened in, so uh, they, they, definitely, they definitely gave him some light there. U.S. men's national team versus Jamaica in an international friendly. It ended up 4-1 to the U.S. team. Was it the strongest opposition? No. Was it fun? Yes. Reyna and Pulisic complement each other so well. Sargent, as Jack likes to call him, had an amazing assist of the Aronson, on the Aronson goal that was almost Firmino-esque. Legette is a baller. Acosta isn't bad. Yunus Musa is a workhorse. Aronson is is exciting and Dest, even on the left side of the field, is class. The chemistry is building for the Burhalter side, and that's a very good sign ahead of a busy summer. We had an absolute golazo from outside of the box from Sergino Dest, just toying with the defenders for that one and slotted in right at the top right corner. The goalkeeper had no chance of saving that. We also had a nice goal from Brendan Aronson from an even nicer sergeant assist and two opportunistic goals from Legette sealed us four to one the only downside from this game was jamaica goal which came from a reggie cannon switching off and getting beat for a jamal low goal richards was also noticeably weak when he got subbed on so there's still some questions in our defense for sure still a fun game that usa like i said won four to one i said they won three to zero for 10 points jack said he's pretty close three to one 10 points if sebastian Legette just just didn't score that last one he would have had it and Paul of the Infringement podcast had two to zero, also for 10 points. And now we're moving on to another UEFA World Cup qualifying game, Germany versus Iceland. And Iceland completely battered Germany. Actually, the complete opposite. Jack, yeah. why don't you explain what happened? Well, Germany and Iceland both wanted to recover after massive losses in the last day of the Nations League. Iceland lost 4-0 to zero against England. Germany lost uh, 6-0 to zero against Spain. So, but it was Germany who recovered nicely after that big loss with a roaring 3-0 to zero win over Iceland. Just three minutes into the game, Leon Goretzka slotted away his effort past the keeper 
And four minutes after that, uh, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Kai Havertz. What a what a great player. Uh, not just because he's a Chelsea player, obviously. Uh, Kai Havertz scored a beautiful goal to double the German advantage only seven minutes into the game. And Iceland just didn't look up for the challenge. They didn't really look to challenge the keeper all that much. Uh, they had a few shots towards the end of the game, but in between that, uh, the informed German midfielder for Manchester City, the man of the moment, Ilkay Gundogan, scored in the 56th minute, cementing a formidable mm-hmm. lead. And Germany are looking to, you know, return to the World Cup after such an embarrassment in 2018, and they look to have gotten off to quite a start. And uh, I guessed four to zero for ten points, very close. Uh, Paul guessed four to one for ten points, and AJ saw the light on this one. He yes, guessed three to zero. And AJ, do you want to tell everyone the scores for this week? Because I yeah. think you might be pretty happy about this one. Yes, I would love to. I ended with 50 points. Jack and Paul, 30 points, which means that is my first win since I believe episode four. I think it's been like I think it's episode three, actually. Episode three. I think it's been literally 10 episodes since I've gotten one of these wins. It, this is insane. I don't know my, my, our exact records. I think I have to be like three and nine and one or something. So something's it's still terrible, but I'm really happy to get this win. I think this is going to be the start of the AJ dominance with the predictions game. Jack, how does it feel like to finally lose against me? Well, I was just drawing for quite a few weeks in a row. Like That's I, true. I, think I, I think I drew like two or three weeks in a row. So I, I wasn't exactly winning, but you know, uh, congratulations on finally breaking that losing streak. Uh, just don't turn this into like a Schalke moment where they won a game and then never <laughs> oh, seem to no. really challenge again. Uh, so, well. Now you jinxed me, so I don't know. I don't even know what's going to happen next. But, you know, with that, those are last week's predictions. So let's go over to next week's predictions. We got Logan of the Stateside Soccer Show joining us. So let's cut over to there. All right. So now that we've talked about the predictions from last week, uh, this week we've got another guest on uh, from the Stoppage Time Show and the Stateside Soccer Show. We had his co-host on a few weeks back but this week we have logan stump from those podcasts logan how are you doing today uh could be a lot better man just got <laughs> done watching the uh for those of you guys listening just the u.s youth national team um blow the olympic qualifiers so uh it could be better um but i, I tend to look on the, the the bright side of things so i'm going to go a little bit more positive here yeah well uh, i mean you kind of, you kind of had a little bit of surface level thought of it. What 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 do you think? Uh, what do you think overall of the game? Just like a quick thirty second thing. Like what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it it came down to just not being able to create chances. I think that was our story pretty much the whole competition. Uh, we had a hard time in the midfield creating chances and getting guys forward and and in a threatening position in the attack. So I think that that was something besides Jackson Ewell that you just didn't see at all really today. Um, and, you know, it was, it's a shame because you look forward to this as a U.S. fan and uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's a failure again for this system and it's hard not to, you know, just, it's hard to disagree with them because it, it really is kind of a step back after we were taking some steps forward. Yeah. It, it that create, that lack of creativity really hurt us today and throughout the entire tournament. But uh, I mean, I guess moving on from maybe a little bit of a, sadder thing to maybe a more positive thing why don't you uh tell our audience a little bit about how you got into soccer and kind of explaining your soccer fandom 
Yeah, so you had my co-host on Jordan. His uh, soccer fandom stems way back, but mine just began, which I know he said a couple of times in your episode. It it began in 2014 World Cup. Um, you know, I got the World Cup game and we were playing. Um, and, you know, the guys said I had done a program with them in 2013 and they were big soccer fans. So, you know, I wanted to kind of get into it a little bit more so I could talk to them about soccer because they would bring it up and World Cup was coming around. So I decided to jump on and, and see what was going on in 2014. Um, and, and actually a team I really liked watching was Argentina. Right. So I, you know, jumped on that and not necessarily rooting for them, but I liked watching them play. I liked seeing, you know, what players I might like because I knew I wanted to get into Premier League uh, and kind of focus on, you know, my fandom on Premier League because it, it was the top league. It was the one that everybody wanted to, you know, kind of step in and be a fan of. Um, but I was looking at, you know, different teams and Messi was really good, but I was like, you know, who else besides Messi on that team's uh, really good and, and shows flashes of excellence. And I was like, Aguero was ultimately number one uh, in my heart, just because he was little, he was uh, quick. Uh, I thought he kind of had like this kind of underdog mentality. He's a little younger then. So he just had this like fiery little um, scoot about him. So I, I really liked watching him play and, and the, the way that he could attack the goal. But um, really just kind of grew attached to him. I had watched, you know, 2010 World Cup, like very casually um, with United States and, and just kind of focusing on uh, different things that were going on around the, the game itself. But uh, we would watch games together. Uh, I used to play baseball. So on, on Saturdays, we, we didn't have a lot of time to watch soccer. But when World Cup came around, there was games all, all over the place. So we got to watch a bunch of the teams play and you know, I really thought it was interesting, but never got into it until 2014. Oh, yeah, sure. I was just going to say, like, I, I we hope you do better than uh, than Jordan, you know, because he he didn't have the best of predictions. I suppose you can say he tied with Jack. So hopefully, hopefully you can do better. I, I think you'll be able to avenge his loss, maybe get a, a, a W for your predictions. But uh, getting into that, we have the first game, which is Leicester City versus Manchester City. Uh, we know you're a Manchester City fan, so we really wanted to uh, include this for you. So this is a Premier League game coming back from the international break. We'll have you go first. W what do you think about this game? Who do you think's taking it? Yeah, so like I, I didn't even finish my thoughts from the last thing, but, uh, you know, because I completely forgot to tell you guys what team I like. But yeah, Man City yeah. is the team that I ended up jumping on board with. You can tell from my Aguero talk. Uh, but yeah, uh, Man City. You know, I we we got bashed in five to two last time at the Etihad against Leicester City. Um, Jamie Vardy is an absolute killer of the top six. He you know he's got forty three goals uh, against the big six, and um, yeah, I think he's got uh, what was it nine? I think in nine and twelve matches against City. But that being said, I think that you know City kind of fixed up that back line with Ruben Diaz coming in from Benfica. So I think that. With that and the way that City's playing in form, just, you know, one in 26 or 27 out of 28 or something crazy, um, I just think it's going to be pretty hard to beat City. And I'm going to go City 2-1. Nice, nice. Jack, what do you think? Well, I think that it, I, I see this pretty similarly. City, a lot of their players in the international break were firing. Gundogan scored... Uh, uh, scored a really good goal against Iceland and Kevin De Bruyne was playing well for Belgium. I, I also think Leicester City have a ton of injuries. Harvey Barnes is out, uh, who usually helps them out a lot. And because of that, I'm going to go a little bit further from Man City. I'm going to say Man City 3 to Leicester 1. Okay, okay. 
Well, I'm going to have to say that uh, both teams are in pretty good form. Missing both Madison and Barnes has got to hurt, and going against a very top-notch City side will only make that hurt more. I think City has got what it takes, despite maybe some rocky roads towards the, the earlier uh, of March and late February. I think City wins this 3-1. to one. And with that, we're moving on to another top table clash. We have a lot of top table clashes in this uh, prediction section. And th this next one, Bundesliga, RB Leipzig versus Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich are currently on top. That might change if RB Leipzig can get some good run of form. Jack, who is going to take it between these two German giants? Well, I think that there's a bit of a calculation going on for Bayern Munich. They have a Champions League game against PSG coming up right after this one. And I'm thinking that they're probably going to want to preserve a lot of their energy for that game. So I don't think that they're going to go out and out attack as much as they usually do. But they also have a lot of depth and a lot of great players. So I don't think they'll lose this one either. RB Leipzig have been playing well and are in a little bit better form than Bayern right now. But I'm going to say that this ends in a high-scoring 2-2 draw. Uh, I know whenever I say that, it ends up 0-0. So mm -hmm. it'll probably end up as that. So if someone else is predict predicting that, I probably just gave you a free, a free win. But uh, I'm going to stick with 2-2. All right. Logan, our guest, who do you think's taking this one? I was going to say, Jordan's not around, uh, so he's not going to pick the 0-0. Zero, zero. Uh, he's the boring one. I go for the <laughs> score. I go for the win. Um, but no, uh, Leipzig playing pretty well defensively. I think to best in uh, Bundesliga, Bayern's best in goal scored with 78. Um, I think Leipzig plays them really well over their history. And since 2016, they both split those five wins and, and one draw. So those 11 matches, um, like, I mean, like Jack said, though, they, they it's really calculated and Bayern having that, that champions league match midweek against PSG, which is a game that they're definitely going to want to win again. So, you know, I, I think, with that calculation, I know Byron's really deep, but I'm going to go off the hinge here. I'm going to say Leipzig take down Byron uh, in 2-1. Wow. Wow. That is, I, I like it. I, I like how, how fired up you are for this. That, that, that's exactly what we want to see. Because I actually said the exact opposite. I said 2-1 for Bayern Munich. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how this one plays out. But you know, in my mind, I do admit RB Leipzig are good. They do have the lowest expected goals against in the league by far, even more than uh, when you compare just regular goals against to the second uh, most defensive team. But they're going against Bayern Munich, who have, by and large, the highest expected goals of the league, and they're actually even overperforming that. This is going to be a clash of titans. But for me, RB Leipzig just can't get it done against high-level opponents like Dortmund, Liverpool, and Bayern. I'll never bet against Levin Golski, which is why I went 2-1 to one for Bayern Munich. And now we have another top table match in PSG versus Lille. I think actually PSG are on top of Ligue 1 currently. This is going to be one of the defining matches of the entire season. Uh, Logan, let's throw it to you first. Who do you think is going to take this this battle of titans in the French Liga. Yeah, I think that 
looking at different things that, I mean, just reading up on the league, we, I don't follow it as much, but kind of getting into some, I mean, PSG, obviously we follow because champions league, but um, Lille played him recently in, in Copa de France uh, and uh, PSG smashed him in uh, three and three nil. Uh, and, you know, PSG, you know, capitalized on mistakes that Lille were making. And I, I think that, Again, it, like you said, it, it's a clash of giants. And sometimes when the smaller giants going up against the bigger giant, it's a little bit tougher to kind of take down that bigger giant. Um, again, but PSG, like, you, you know, you mentioned that Champions League, they got one coming from Bayern. And I know they want their revenge on Bayern after that final. Um, but again, I, just the depth, when you look at depth, they just seem to be able to rotate attacking pieces way better than Lille can. And, and these big clubs, um, we see it all the time at City and stuff, but these big clubs just really have a way of just winning these games. And I think PSG wins 1-0. All right. Jack, you know a little bit more about French football. Do you have Lille winning? I know you're pretty high on Lille uh, when we did our predictions for Liga for the rest of the season. Do you think they have what it takes to usurp PSG's dominance? Well, I think they can potentially because, you know, PSG, like Logan said, have that tough game against Bayern Munich and they're going to want to do well. But at the same time, you know, Lille has a man on form in Barack Yilmaz who scored a hat trick for Turkey and scored again uh, in their in their most recent matchup. So he he's kind of on fire and if he and if he can take that sort of form back to Lille with him then i think Lille have a shout of making it in but again it's hard to bet against psg especially since they dismantled leon 4 to 2 in their most recent game i'm going to say that this ends in a 1-1 draw though i i'm i'm i know i'm picking a lot of draws this week but i i really think that this one has a potential to end in that Lille has a good defense so do PSG. They both have good attacks. I think they cancel each other out for a 1-1. All right. Well, I went hard into PSG. I have them winning 2-0. PSG are... I, I think Neymar still might be coming back from injury. Hopefully the international break helped them out a little bit. And it's true that PSG just haven't been dominant this season as much as we've seen before. But they did, in recent weeks, dominate Barcelona beat Lille in the Coup de France, and beat Lyon away from home 2-4. to four. So when I see is this is going to be an uphill battle for Lille, even though PSG have a midweek Champions League game to worry about. So if Lille wants to win the PS, wants to beat PSG for the Liga title, they got to beat them. And I just don't see that happening given PSG's recent form and the depth that they have. I'm going 2-0 to zero for PSG and now we're moving further along the Iberian Peninsula to Spain and this is Athletic Club versus Real Sociedad the Copa del Rey final I will note this is actually the 2020 Copa del Rey final played about hmm, a year later just because of COVID-19 so going into this it's going to be just a weird matchup but it's going to be an interesting one Jack, let's start with you. What do you think about the Basque Derby happening in the Copa del Rey final? Well, neither of these teams are on good form. They're both playing pretty poorly. Uh, Real Sociedad got yes. battered by Barcelona 6-1. to one. And Athletic Club, you know, they were able to do a little bit better and uh, conserve themselves to a one-all draw against 
uh, relegation candidates, Ibar. But ultimately, you know, Athletic Club are playing really well recently in big games like this. Uh, they want, they, they've already won a trophy against Barcelona this season. They're in, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they're in the Copa del Rey final for this season, uh, in addition to the one for next season. And they've got a solid back line, a solid goalkeeper, and some really good attacking talent, such as uh, Inaki Williams. And because of that, I'm going to say Athletic Club's on a little bit better form. I'll give them the edge in this one. I'm saying they win it 2-1. All right, giving Athletic Club the edge. Logan, I don't watch a lot of, of Spanish soccer. I don't know how much you do as well. But from what you see, who is winning this game? Yeah, so I, I mean... Looking at it, um, I, I don't watch as much uh, La Liga. Um, I tend to stick towards Premier League um, and then MLS. But uh, again, I think that Jack made some really good points. I think that Athletic Club has had some stretches where they've played well against good teams. Um, it, it is concerning to me that Real Sociedad sits 10 points higher. And, and you know, I know that's not uh tremendous but it is it is big for um as far as you know getting this late in the season that that's kind of telling of how good these teams are and how well they perform um they both look to struggle at times with scoring i mean they go through stretches where they'll have like random games they bust out for four or five and it's like okay there we fix kind of our goal differential problems but not really um that, that kind of happens yeah. to teams that that are lower and that sit lower in the league but you know, I think that Real Sociedad, David Silva, yeah. my guy, um, I, I got to go with Sociedad uh, 1-0, and I don't think it'll be much of an exciting game just because it just the, the two teams really just seem to be struggling at this point. Nice. I, I again, went the opposite of you. I said 1-0 to for Athletic Bilbao. I do understand that Bilbao are ninth and Sociedad are fifth, and that Real Sociedad has had the upper hand against Athletic Club winning four of their past five meetings. But when you look at it, Real Sociedad are coming off a 1-6 drubbing by the hands of Barcelona. And they're underscoring their XG by six goals in the past couple of games. That's, that's really tough. They haven't been as prolific as they have been. So that's why I went with an underdog win. 1-0 to Athletic Bilbao. I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident in that. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. But what I do know is that Liverpool versus Arsenal is happening in the Premier League. A really interesting matchup. And this is going to be actually an exciting battle between two good teams fighting for seventh place. So maybe actually not that exciting in the grand scheme of things. But you know, both teams have struggled this season. So it's going to be a really interesting battle between these two. Who wins? Probably the viewers, because whenever these two meet, it ends up going to penalties in cup competitions, or it's a close, usually exciting match. In the past six matches, both teams have had three wins, so it's pretty even. I think Arsenal have the mentality to win, especially after being able to come back against West Ham. So I'm feeling a Lacazette brace. I have Arsenal winning 2-1. to one. Jack, are you with me? Are you on the Arsenal train, or are you, are you supporting Liverpool for this one? See, here's the thing. I hate both of these teams. Like, <laughs> I do not like either of them. Uh, but it, you're right. It's an exciting game because Liverpool need this to get yeah. back into the Champions League race. And Arsenal need this to keep any hope of any European competition alive. And Arsenal did well to battle back against West Ham, although 
a lot of those were own goals that that yeah, were scored, yeah. as you know, AJ. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Liverpool's defensive issues just still exist. They were lucky to win against Wolves, in my opinion. Sure. And I I think ultimately, like Arsenal are probably going to win this one as well. I I think they will. I'm I'm going to say one to zero though. I think that their defense has actually been really solid recently. Uh, apart from the West Ham game, of course, where they conceded three in the first half. But, you know, uh, I, I think that Arsenal win this 1-0 just because I'm, I'm feeling it's going to be something weird, like a Granite Jaka goal or something that does mm-hmm. it. That'd be pretty exciting. That'd be pretty exciting. Well, Logan, it's the final game. You're our final slot. Bring it home. Who is winning this Premier League matchup between two uh, former top four candidates now? top eight candidates who's taking it yeah so the game's away so obviously liverpool lose or win right it's not at home yeah. so they can't lose this <laughs> one um that's something that uh, as, as city fans what a chelsea fan and a west ham fan we're not used to saying going into anfield and but anyway it's a, it's a way um however uh, like you guys said and you harped on it and we've been talking about this one of our co-hosts is a liverpool fan um and we get the weekly long grocery list of injuries that uh, liverpool have um but again you know i I just don't see this going well for i'm gonna say i don't see this going well for arsenal uh actually i think that while liverpool are not playing at, at the top of their game i think that just kind of their style of play and and the way that they can kind of just grind out wins. Um, it's on the road. They don't typically lose on the road now. So that's something that, you know, I think, I don't know if it's something in Anfield that, that scares them or what it is, but uh, you know, I really do. I feel confident in what clap can do. I, I think coming out of an international break, maybe you get some of those guys back that are dinged up because they're all dinged up at this point. Um, yeah. But again, I, I think Liverpool is just, too big of a monster uh, for Arsenal, um, even if Arsenal's playing well at this point, just because I think that Liverpool just has too much to offer. And I, I saw Jota's playing pretty well for Portugal. So that that kind of flipped me on that side to think that maybe Liverpool can get back into this top four battle. Nice, nice. Well, those are some pretty interesting predictions. I like how, unlike last week, we had a, a lot of different, uh, different opinions on most of the games. It's going to be really interesting how that plays out but Logan, you have completed your first, you know, we might have you again in the future, your first prediction section. How are you feeling? Do you think you'll be able to avenge Jordan and get the stateside soccer show, Stoppage Time Soccer Show, their first win? Well, I better be uh, better at telling you guys a score. Liverpool 1-0. Um, <laughs> but no, it's uh, I totally spaced on that. So no, I wouldn't beat Jordan. But uh, no, I think Jordan is actually probably like he'll randomly get uh, ones right that are draws, but he <laughs> tends to lean. He leans way more conservative than Matt and I do. Um, and, and I've been, I've been on the money for quite a bit of those predictions when we used to do them weekly, but as the season gone on, it's kind of just been a mess, but um, yeah, I, I feel really confident, but I do think that that I'll salvage some, I, I know that your guests, I weren't they doing really well before Jordan messed that up. Um so yeah, you know, I'll, I'll have to correct <laughs> ship because Jordan tends to take everything down with him. So, all right. And Jack, you lost last week. How are you feeling this week? Oh, I mean, I, I, I predicted a lot of draws that, and uh, whenever I, uh, like I said, I predicted high score in draws, which means they're going to end zero, zero. It, right. It's just a rule. <laughs> <at this point. laughs> 
I, I'm probably not going to do well, but we'll, we'll hope. I, once I get off of the hot streak, it, it's gone for a while. And I got off one. So <laughs> yeah, take that as you will. I'm, I'm hoping for that, actually, because, you know, now that I got my first win in 10 weeks, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can hopefully start a streak of my own and, you know, bring it bring it home for for Team AJ. You know what I'm saying? So, Logan, again, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, would you like to, you know, give us a little bit of a, a plug to all your podcasts that you have? Uh, tell us where where the viewers where they can find you. Yeah, so my list is not nearly as extensive as Jordan's uh, Infinity and Beyond yeah. podcast list thing, whatever he's got going on over there. He's got about 30. But no, I've got just just the two that I'm doing now. I do stoppage time uh, and we do stateside soccer show. Obviously, stoppage time kind of winding down going the season. But um, yeah, you can find me over there. I co-host with Jordan and Matt on stoppage time. And then Jordan and I do the stateside soccer show. And we're, we're now running through our season previews and got the the rest of the east coming up this week and uh into next week so looking forward to mls starting up and um yeah you can find us at stateside uh show over on twitter or stoppage time soccer or stoppage time show over on twitter as well um just give us a follow but i really appreciate you guys uh having me on i I love the content that you guys are producing i've been following I, i love the different things that you guys post like as far as bullet points and stuff i was reading through some of them today and going back and listening to some episodes but really appreciate what you guys are doing over here yeah cool again thank you so much for coming thanks guys and with that that's the end of the final third we had an amazing time talking to logan we had an amazing time talking with all of you jack is there anything you want to say to everybody well you know as always Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Third Show. It's it's a great place to talk with us. You can maybe uh, you can maybe see me try and speak Slovak if you're if you're looking for entertainment, and uh, you know uh, you can you can see a ton of other great U.S. Men's National Team content from AJ. Yes. And keep an eye out on there because we'll probably be announcing the games that we're planning on live commentating over pretty soon on there. We just have to figure out some final details. And uh, we'll post those on there. And also, uh, another big thank you, because we have almost reached 500 downloads uh, in three months, which is absolutely fantastic. So thank you to everyone who has been listening so far. Uh, We really, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, So thank you so much for that. Yes, thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Podics Addict podcast addict or ever you guys listen to us on it's been great to talk to you don't forget to tell one of your friends that you like the show it always helps tell your dad even and we'll see you guys on thursday for a deep dive episode going into the mls eastern conference and don't forget to check us out same time same place for next week's news and predictions show see ya bye for now